Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Monday, February the 18th, 2019. Is, is that not kind of just a little insane? Uh, this year seems to be going so fast compared to the last several years anyway to me. I think maybe one of those reasons might be a good thing, though. Um, last year, by this time in the year, I was like, 2018 can just go screw. I mean, the first three months of 2018 for me were brutal with problems and things going wrong and stuff breaking and ice storms and just so many other things. And even stuff that was supposed to be fun, like my trip to New Hampshire, was just a disaster. We had fun. Uh, me and my buddy Dave had fun on that trip, but, but only because we worked really hard to make it fun. It was not a good start to the year. This year, not a lot of great, super amazing things have happened, but it's been pretty uneventful. So I don't have a bad taste in my mouth for 2019 so far. I guess that's a good thing. Anyway, you know what I'm going to say when I add to that, though, in the year going so fast? Tick-tock, tick-tock, the clock ticks for us all. Hope you're working on your liberty and your freedom and your independence and your lifestyle design and, you know, all of it. Because if you're not, life is just pushing you in the other direction. Life is not a sliding scale. You're either moving toward your goals or life's moving them away from you. If you don't have any, then it's really moving them away from you. All right, so what are we going to talk about today? Well, we're going to talk about... First of all, a quick update on the Timber Frame Pond Workshop that I will be doing here at Nine Mile Farm. Uh, I will give you the dates of that and possibly, uh, I'm going to give you an idea that we might do sign-ups starting Saturday. I haven't decided if we'll do Saturday this week or Saturday next week for sign-ups, but I'll tell you as much as you need to know about that for now. I'll give, go ahead and give you the dates right now. It's going to be a Thursday and Friday. We're not going to do this on a weekend. We're going to do it Thursday and Friday. Usually we do long workshops. They start on Wednesday and end Sunday. This is not that kind of workshop. Thursday, Friday, and uh, it'll be April 25 and 26 is when it looks like it's going to be. I'll tell you more about it when we get to that segment. I got a quick email from somebody that says why you really should get your Berkey stuff from the Berkey guy. It'll make sense when I read it. And I have a segment coming up called, gee, um... That student loan bubble is um, getting pretty big there, yeah. We're going to talk about what nobody's saying about the student loan bubble and what the bigger problem is. Um, the solution to the fact that ElectroNet is a pain in the ass. Last week I answered a question on using ElectroNet, and when I, when I came to pasturing chickens from a standpoint of broilers, uh, I pointed out the obvious, hold on while I throw my dog out. Real-world podcasting, guys. If your dog comes and barks at you like that and you don't let her out, she poops in your house, it's your problem. Anyway, um, so I mentioned that ElectroNet was kind of a pain in the ass, and it is. And my um, buddy Steve uh, wrote in and said, hey, I got a solution for it. I really don't like all the crap that goes with it, but I came up with a way to make it nice and easy. And he included some photos that I'll give links to in the show notes today. We'll talk about that. 
Uh, a great tip for tool security at work and elsewhere. Um, we had a question about securing your tools at work. Uh, a guy wrote in that is a law enforcement officer and gave us a tip that I think is an excellent tip, and it may lead to somebody that stole your shit getting busted just by happenstance at some point, so that's a good thing. Um, Low-maintenance ground cover for Michigan. We'll talk about that. It's really an easy one. Uh, turning starting plants into a side hustle. Question answered here for Jake Robinson, who finds himself in the middle of a situation that he has some success, but he wants to make sure he capitalizes on it. Uh, why you need a website, not just a Facebook page. We'll talk a little bit more about that, though. Some of the conversation last week should make that question immediately, obviously, answerable to anybody that listens to this show. But since that question came after we discussed this, I'm going to cover it. Um, next, the truth about corporations uh, that don't pay taxes. And here's the other part of it. Why they shouldn't. Why they shouldn't. And why you shouldn't care that they don't. Uh, I know it sounds nuts, but I'll make a case for it. Uh, five states with the biggest fall in revenue. <laughs> There's no surprise here. We're going to re revisit a, a little idea old Jack had a few years ago called Walking to Freedom. And uh, then we have a fun little question at the end. Making maple syrup into something like meat or beer or wine or cider or something like that. I'll give you my opinion on it. I'll tell you what you can do, but what I would do if I was going to do it. We'll get to all of that and more in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead here from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Ready Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does. ReadyMadeResources.com, long-term supporter of the Survival Podcast, Been with us now, oh gee, I guess going on about nine and a half years. And they have everything that you could want for your prepping, from the practical to the tactical, guns to gardens, and everything in between. You will find it all at the company that does what it says and says what it does, readymaderesources.com. Next up today, Western Botanicals. I have always been fond of herbs. At one point in my life, I actually began uh, training toward becoming a herbalist, like a certified master herbalist. I ended up only going so far with that training because I decided it really wasn't what I wanted to do from a professional standpoint. But it gave me a whole new level of understanding of what herbal medicine can and can't do. And it also made me really suspicious of a lot of companies in the sector because there's a lot of smoke and mirror bullshit when it comes to herbs. Western Botanicals has no smoke and no mirrors. What they have is a goal to help put an herbalist in every home in America. They have everything you could think of from the herbal standpoint. If it's legal and available in America, you can find it at Western Botanicals, and it will all also be either wildcrafted or organically grown. You can find it all, again, at westernbotanicals.com, and they give away their premium membership, which costs 50 bucks for free to all members of the MSB as well. So they're a great supporter with great stuff, and they have real people that really care about you that will really answer the phone and help you if you call their customer service department. Uh, next up, let's go ahead and get on into it. I want to start out with uh, talking to you today about the Timber Frame Pond Workshop, exactly what that is, exactly what we're going to do, exactly how we're doing it, why we're doing it that way, uh, when we're doing it, uh, what it's going to cost, all of that jazz. So, again, we're going to be doing this April 25 and 26. That's a Thursday and a Friday. That also happens to line up because it just does, and I can't think of a better weekend to do it, and there's reasons not to do it one before or one after, and I don't want to wait any longer. 
uh, with Nicole Sauce's um, Living Free in Tennessee workshop up in Tennessee. So what I'll tell you is if traveling here for this workshop doesn't make sense for you, but you want to do something really cool, I think she still has a few seats left. And I'll put a link in the show notes to where you can sign up for that workshop. I didn't want to do this because Nicole's such a good friend of the show. And I didn't want to feel like I would be pulling any people from her workshop. I just don't want to do that to her. She has her thing, and I'm really happy to support it. Uh, but it just worked out that way. So I want to make sure that I'm, I'm pushing for her as well. Uh, I expect that most of the people that come to my workshop uh, are going to be fairly local since it's only going to be two days. What we normally do for a big workshop is people show up Wednesday. We have a Wednesday night party, and then we do workshop Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and people go home Sunday. We ain't doing that. We're going to have you show up the day it starts, Thursday morning, right? So we need everybody on site by the time work starts, and it'll all be in the documentation. It's probably going to be around 10 a.m. First day, people see to their own breakfast needs. We'll have coffee and breakfast bars and fruit out. Full lunch, full dinner, party. I mean, we're just going to have some kind of party whenever we have this many TSPers together. Friday is going to be wake up. If you want to camp here, you're going to be plenty. We are not going to be pushing ourselves to get the work done. With this many people and the work needs to be done, and I've built one before, we're not going to have a problem. We're going to have the ground prepped with equipment before anybody gets here, so we're going to be ready to roll for this thing. And it's going to be pretty easy. There will probably be a lot of slacking time, a lot of socializing time, etc. We'll have a lot of fun. Next day, we complete the project, though. Um, we may get it done way quicker than I'm anticipating even, and then we'll work some other stuff in if we do that. Uh, but three meals on Saturday, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I mean, on, on Friday, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, and then go home no later than 10 a.m. off the property on Saturday. Dorothy and I decided if we were going to do us because we stopped doing spring workshops. It was just too much work for us to do two big workshops a year. We decided if we're going to do this little one this year, basically we want our weekend back. My wife wants her house in order and everybody gone, and I think it's a great thing. So that's how we're going to do it this year. What we're going to be doing, I finally settled down a size. We're going to be doing a 12-foot by 12-foot by about 3 to 4-foot deep uh, Miyagi-style pond, as David and I have named them, because it looks like they belong in Mr. Miyagi's backyard. They're really beautiful. It's basically built out of 4 by 4s for your walls. We're going to try to get this one to where the top wall is about 30 inches. So it's a little lower than the one I've built. That's why we're going to bring an excavator in and kind of have the ground prepped in advance and dig as much of that rock out as we can. So there won't be any rough, hard work for everybody to do. Uh, it will be a working workshop. We'll basically be building the frame, installing the liner, doing the plumbing, setting up the structure for the fish. We won't really be putting many fish into it because it's a brand-new pond. It needs to get through a cycle. But we'll teach you about all of that. It should be a hell of a lot of fun. Here's where it really differs from my prior workshops. I usually bring in, you know, I sell like 45 tickets. I sell 45 tickets, uh, and I know that a few people are going to cancel on me, etc. We're doing 18. We worked out the numbers and figured out that's the number we can do. We can make this really easy on ourselves. It will be a much more intimate experience. Some of you maybe that have been before didn't get to spend as much time with me as you wanted to or uh, you haven't been and you want to actually spend time with me, I will be a lot less resource strapped on one like this then because when we do 45 students and we have a bunch of you know expert council people come and stuff like that, additional instructors, we end up with 70 people on the property with staff and everybody included. So we're not going to need a big staff. Uh, I'm not bringing in any you know, expert council members, anything like that. 
Uh, we're not doing any classroom stuff unless, again, we end up with some time. You know, we may do some presentations or some things like that. So that's going to be the, the workshop. I think, again, I think it'll be really fun. It'll be a bit different. It'll kind of be a hybrid between a work with Jack one and a, you know, a long-term one. Cost 300 bucks. I think that's more than fair for what we do for a workshop like this. And I think so that makes it more affordable, less time, et cetera, so it's easier for people that maybe have not been able to come to one. Uh, you can come from Timbuktu if you want to, but I, I kind of do expect that the majority of people will be, you know, Dallas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, I think is where we'll get the majority of people to this one from. But you guys never cease to amaze me. Some of the, I mean, we had one, it was a big one, but we had a guy come from Australia uh, to one of our workshops. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing to me that people would do that. So, Mark your calendars, figure out your timeline. I, I'm probably going to put the workshop up for uh, deposit Saturday this weekend. The way it's going to work, it's pretty simple, $300, bucks, so $150 deposit, $150 on arrival. Deposits and refunds, I always try to do my best. Um, since this is such limited seating, I am going to just say that deposits are non-refundable. That doesn't mean I might not figure out how to refund your deposit if I can, especially if I can sell your seat, but I'm just going to say up front that deposits are non-refundable on this one. All right, with that, let's talk about the next thing we want to talk about today, and that is why should you always go to theberkeyguy.com, or actually, the Ber they said, you know, you'd think he'd have that website, berkeyguy1234.com or something, uh, but why you should always go to Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason's website, which is at directive21.com, when you buy Berkey stuff. Here's why. This comes from Josh. Josh says, I just wanted to reach out to share my opinion on why everyone in your community should use LPC, and that's LPC Survival, that's Jeff's actual company, for everything Berkey. My Royal Berkey was purchased at a large online retail site where you can buy almost anything legal except Second Amendment related items. I think he means eBay and he didn't want to say it. Okay. Anyway, uh, the included fluoride filters in that order were unmarked. There were also no Berkey metallic stickers on the packaging of those filters. An internet search revealed that many branded items sold in there had been found to be fake, even major brand companies' electronics that would be hard to make. The confidence alone in knowing that my drinking water is safe is reason enough to trust Jeff Gleason. Not an overstatement. Bartlett, Texas Municipal Water commonly has a boil warning. Uh, seeing his prices are in line with other sites at retail and actually uh, become cheaper factoring in my TSP discount makes it all the better. Thanks, Jack. Josh. I, I think that this is like, one, it is a testimony for Jeff. And uh, Jeff, I've always said for years now, Jeff's been with us like eight years as a podcast sponsor. I mean, that's crazy. Um, but he's, you know, you can trust the guy. And I think that is so important in so many ways because if you're getting a water filter that's basically a counterfeit water filter, the, the reality is it might be great. It might do everything it's supposed to do. Uh, the reality is also it probably isn't. If it was as good, you know, it would be sold as what it is. It would speak for itself. So I think you really have to be careful with stuff like that, especially, you know, when you're buying new items. Like, it's one thing when you're buying something used. Generally, you know, people are selling a used item. You, you kind of figure out what it is and where it came from, and you get it at a huge discount, and, and generally you're buying a utility. You're not going to buy a used water filter. When it comes to stuff like this, man, you want to know you're getting the real deal because that's what you're paying for. And that's why you've made the decision to buy what you're buying. Uh, and there's a lot of little things, too. Like, okay, let's say that you bought a water filter, and overall, it works. Like, 
As long as nothing goes wrong, it works. But if it's not built with the quality of something like a Berkey water filter system, and what happens maybe is that one of the components fails, and it looks like it's working fine, but the water, instead of going through the filter media, is actually leaking through the downspout, and all of a sudden you're drinking unfiltered water that you expected to be filtered. Not going to happen with a, with a Berkey, and you're going to get real Berkey stuff from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason at Directive21.com. Um, next up, Charlie wrote me in, and he says, here's one on rising student loan defaults. This is, this is the one that I, I think I'm the only one that's been telling people what the real danger is here on a large scale, because I don't think people are seeing it for what it is. I'll put a link to the article in the show notes so you can read it yourself. It's on Yahoo Finance, but it's from Bloomberg. But the basic issue here is that student loan delinquency surged last year, hitting a consecutive record of $166.3 billion in the third quarter and $166.4 billion in the fourth quarter. There's also a chart that's included here. And in 2003, the total student loan debt was about $200 billion in 2003-2004, about $200 billion. A little higher, but in that neighborhood, $200 billion. We now have almost as much delinquency on student loan debt as all the student loan debt that existed about 10 years ago, right? About uh, 15 years ago. Think about that. Really let that sink in. Currently, there's over $1.4 trillion in debt. So that's gone from $200 billion to $1.4 trillion But delinquencies are at $166 billion. Delinquencies mean people ain't paying their bills. Now, there's some things going on here that the mainstream is finally starting to talk about, but they don't see the actual danger for the economy and for society as a whole. $1.4 trillion is a staggering amount of debt. It's staggering. It is You know, governments run on far less money than it. Smaller governments run on far less money than that. Far less. I don't think any state's any any state's budget is 1.4 trillion. Any single state. Um, it is absolutely mind-boggling what 1.4 trillion dollars in debt is. Despite that, <clears throat> the finance companies holding this debt, most of it anyway, that's government-backed, are not highly at risk. Of not getting money. The government covers a certain portion of the debt for them. The government will go after the person that owes the money to the point that if you don't pay it, by the time you end up in Social Security, they'll garnish your Social Security. And the government can just print money to cover the debt. And I know that you heard about, you know, Zimbabwe and the Weimar Republic and that doesn't work and blah, but it does work. I'm not saying it can't ever lead to a point where it stops working, but in general, the government can print the money to cover the defaults. And they do. And they, so the, the, the lenders actually get paid in some instances twice on this debt. Because the government covers it, they don't give it back, and yet they still collect it from you. It's also a debt you cannot discharge with, 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 uh, with anything. There's no, there's no escape from student loan debt. It will follow you forever. You can't even get rid of it with bankruptcy. You can't even get rid of it with bankruptcy. Okay? You really let that sink in. All right. Now, this loan debt has continued to grow 
almost a perfect even curve. And it kind of took off in 2005. If you look at this graph, the, the growth curve was, was constant, but the angle was very shallow. And in 2005, it jumped. And then it went into a much steeper angle, and it's re retained that angle almost perfect all the way up to 2019. I mean, it's almost a straight line. There's, there, there's no real, no year ever declines, and every year increases by about the same amount. It's not exponential. It's just linear, straight-up growth. So what everybody talks about when they say the student loan bumble is the eventual, you know, if how, 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 how delinquent can borrowers become before the financial institutions collapse? And again, the reality is, you know, short of everybody, it's probably not going to happen. The delinquencies could go up to $300 billion. It could double without being more than $1.4 But if you keep growing and delinquencies get to $300 billion, it means even less because it's a percentage of the whole. This is not like a housing debt where the bank ends up stuck with a piece of shit house that you ran out on and they got to figure out how to liquidate it. It doesn't work that way. They get their money. Upgrade, in this case, is the lender, and Upgrade gonna get his money. So what's the problem? Okay. <laughs> this shit can't continue. You can't continue to have this, this, this grow this way, this graph. How, how much student loan debt do you think there can be in the world? Before people just go, no, no, not doing it. And how many... New methods of education are being created to cut the cost of education. So, I want you to think about this. The universities of our country have grown to enormous-sized institutions. Massive institutions on the back of this crippling debt. I'm not even saying they're bad for it. It is what it is. It just is. Just accept that. Some places, the college is more important to the economy of a local local area than the sing any other of the single largest employers there. There are towns that if the college just dried up and blew away, the town would dry up and blow away. But that can't happen. Oh, but it can. Oh, but it can. Because there's a, we're reaching a point where the cost of the education is so high is it to make no financial sense to pursue it at all unless you're pursuing something that is a very specific type of degree. I've said this before. Some people don't want to accept it, but it's true. There is no world that we should live in in which 70% or more of high school graduates in this country are going on to pursue university degrees. It should not be possible. And it wouldn't be possible without this phony baloney money. It wouldn't be possible. The average IQ, whether you like this or not, these are facts. I'm not making this shit up, guys. The average IQ in America today is 98. A person with a 98 IQ, I'm sorry, is barely capable of performing at a university level. A real, not a fake, phony, baloney degree in bitterness studies university level, but a true university level. A person with a 98 IQ is barely capable. You should be looking somewhere in the number around 115 is a baseline for the average university student. And plenty of people with an IQ that high or higher have no business there either because they have no interest in pursuing an academia-based career. There's better paths for them. 
When you work those numbers out, we should have college enrollment somewhere in the neighborhood of 40% of high school graduates that are actually capable and need that type of an education or will highly benefit from that type of an education. If you write me and give me some sob story and some anger bullshit story about I was so fortunate that I went to college, then maybe you're in that 40%. I don't have a problem with that. Well, my IQ is only 99, and I did just great. Okay, fine, you're an exception. I'm talking about generalities here, guys. If you're smart enough to pass university, you should be smart enough to understand what I just said, and that it may not apply to you directly. If not, then you're an indictment on the education system. But this, is, this can't continue. You can't continue to have these kids, 18, 19 years and old, saddling themselves with dollars $50,000, $200,000 in debt because they're not going to. And that's the real danger. The danger of the bubble pop is not the delinquency number. It could get there, but I mean, it's a long way from there. You got to get somewhere in the neighborhood of 40%. But even that, the more that number goes up, the more that number goes up, the more young people say, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. And what you don't understand, because the TV will never tell you the truth about this, the whole effing system is a Ponzi scheme. It's a Ponzi scheme. They build all this shit, rec centers, univer you know, halls, lecture halls, wings, etc. They build these universities. They build these programs. They go from having like 20 paths to a degree to 250 or more paths to a degree. They build all this shit based on the understanding that next year they will have enrollment that will match or exceed the enrollment from this year, or at least they'll have revenue that will match or exceed the revenue from this year. Universities have worked out a scam by which they are able to build their universities on debt that they don't owe. Imagine if you could build a business on borrowed money, but you didn't incur the debt. Wouldn't that be great? Like, you literally can't go bankrupt over the debt because it's not your debt. Somebody else takes the debt on. You use their money to pay your employees and build your business. And then if they can't pay it, screw them. It's their problem. Until there's no more of them to parasite off of. And what, what no one will tell you is that if, if enrollments and revenue... Because it could be one or the other, because they raise the price. So if you have less enrollment, but it's not huge, you can still have more money. But if total revenue, for any reason, for the university system drops by about 10%, and the student loans drop by about 10%, it is the beginning of pulling a thread that will never stop. And it will cause cascading effects through the entire thing. And what no one wants to talk about is this scam industry. And that's what it is. It is now a scam industry. It doesn't mean there's not legitimate parts of it. I always have to say that because some dumbass is going to write me. When you just think, oh, no, no, I understand. I understand that my, my nephew is about to go to law school. I understand that's the only path to get where he wants to go. I get that. Most of these people are not there. Look at the people that are going to school. Listen to them talk. Listen to an idiot with an economics degree that is now a United States congresswoman. And we'll talk about her in a little bit in another story. And then tell me there's a value to this education. There isn't. It is a scam industry. And it is built on a predication that there'll be a new group of, of, of marks 
to put more money in next year to cover from last year. And as soon as it starts to drop, it's over. And what you're going to see when it's through, it's not really going to be a bubble pop, but a Ponzi scheme unraveling. And it will send ripple effects because this scam industry is now one of the biggest industries in the world. And it's certainly one of the biggest industries in America. It will have the same type of effects if you had a massive blow-up of the medical industry or the defense industry. It's that big. And in some ways, it's more insidious. Because think about what happened when the Army closed some of its, of its posts, some of its basic training posts, you know, 20 years ago. When they closed down an army base, the whole area around it collapsed like, like a mill left town. Well, there's universities everywhere, aren't there? This is a disaster and a half waiting to happen. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to line right up with, with coming to terms and coming to Jesus when it comes to what automation is going to do to employment in this country. So I'm telling you right now, if you have kids, unless there is a compelling reason for them to take this path they need to not take this path they need to not take this path if they don't at least do their first couple of years as cheap as possible in junior college unless they know exactly what they want to do you are doing them a disservice kids today should know all of the options that are available to them and I hate some of you parents I hate you guys for one thing you do you don't you, you fear telling your kids the truth because you want them to do what they're supposed to do so bad That you're too cowardly to say, well, let's learn about Excel, Johnny. And let's see, if you get a degree in this crap, what does your future look like? And how much is it going to cost you? Never fear telling your young people the effing truth. And the truth is right now, this is a catastrophe. And they're going to end, if they end up with $150,000 a day owe and work at Starbucks if they're lucky and you let it happen, It's as much your fault as theirs. Because we know this is unsustainable. Now again, you got a bright young person pursuing a specific path. That is custom tailor-made for the existing university system where the programs are still solid. But you can't tell me, when I look at schools with 40,000 students in that school, that all 40,000 of those students should be there. You can't tell me that with a straight face. I don't believe you. And you don't believe yourself. This is going to come just threadbare apart at the seams. This is one of our greatest threats to economic stability in the future. It really is. It doesn't have to be. But it kind of does now. It's gotten too big. If it, it, it's, it's one of those things, if we don't figure out how to systematically over time slowly take it apart then the only end is catastrophe. That's where we're at. And the people that make the money on it, the people that are vested in it, will fight tooth and nail to keep it to make sure that it explodes in their face. Because they, they don't really believe it will because they've, they've drank the Kool-Aid and believe their own bullshit. There is no more dangerous a con man that believes his own bullshit. All right, let's go to something else. So something far more useful than student loan debt is being able to take care of livestock and pasture it. And last week I had a question about Electronet. And uh, I, I did make the statement that Electronet's a pain in the ass. And it is. 
I, I hope that I didn't come off as being anti-Electronet, though. I think it's a good, useful tool that does some wonderful things, especially in the right environment and situation. It works really, really well. Um, but it can be a pain in the ass. Well, Steve uh, Larkin, my buddy uh, from East Texas out here, uh, who comes to a lot of these workshops, should be at the uh, pond building when we talked about today. Uh, he wrote me a letter, and this is what he said. I was just listening to last Thursday's podcast about chickens and Electronet. I agreed as a bitch to move it often, especially at my age, strength and pain in my hands. So I came up with a pretty good hack for doing it. I modified a two-wheel cart, and I'll just say on this, he's talking about a, a, a like a, fur, a furniture dolly, you know, a hand truck type thing when he says two-wheel cart. Uh, I have about uh, one-quarter inch rod sticking out the front. I also added a place for a hammer and a small pry bar. In the summer here, I have to leverage them out of the dry soil. So you just skewer the fence on the rods and walk backward, pulling the cart and throw each section off as you go backward. Then you go back and set up the fence. It works the same in reverse for taking it down. Pull up all the stakes, lay the fence down, walk backwards a couple seconds, and fold them onto the rod. So you can, so you want to pull it, and the folds are all aligned themselves quite well. I've attached some pics. Feel free to share it if you want to. It's been a great help for me. Thanks, Jack Steve. Um, I think it's cool. And that might not make perfect sense hearing it audibly. So I have a link, and it's like a link to a directory on one of my web servers. And so when you get there, you'll just see like Steve Fence-1, Steve Fence-2, 3. You click on those, they'll pull the pictures up. I think once you look at it, you go, oh, that makes perfect sense. So I just wanted to share that with you guys because, you know, I think it makes a lot of sense as a tool. Uh, and if you could make it less of a pain in the ass, it's more likely that you'll be able to use it and uh, and get get the good benefits out of it with less of the ass pain. I do want to add before I move on from that that something being a pain in the ass is subjective. If you pretty much farm or homestead full time, it's not a big deal. But a lot of us, what we're doing is we're running our lives, our other business, or you know, our main business has nothing to do with homesteading, or we have a job or something like that. And and you know, this is the kind of thing like. Once you start a system that involves rotating livestock, it's got to happen. You know, and maybe one day is in a disaster, but two or three days that you don't do it because you don't feel like it uh, or you don't have time, and, and all of a sudden all the benefit you were going to get out of it is gone. So I always say to try to build systems that work for you, and just because I say, so I just want to be clear about that, just because I say something's a pain in the ass for me and that I wouldn't do it, doesn't mean that you shouldn't if you can figure out a way to make it fit your life. We all design our own life, so all of our designs should have similarities, but they also should always be different. I mean, I'm not going to do this no matter what, because why? Because I can't put a stake in the ground here. Because there's places where literally, I mean, two inches and you hit rock. So how can I put stakes in the ground and move them around on a semi-regular you know, regular basis? So... Just a thought on that. Okay, next one, uh, Justin Case, which is a pseudonym, not a real name, uh, commented on the blog, and I thought this was a good enough comment that I wanted to put it on the air. We had a uh, segment last week, episode 2376, I guess two weeks ago, uh, on, for listener calls, asking about securing tools in a work environment. Buy tools, take them to work, don't want them to walk off and go away. And I give some thoughts on it. Uh, and here's what Justin, again, who's a law enforcement officer, had to say about that. Responding to the call about securing and marking your tools, I do agree with protecting your investment with a quality chest first. I would take a weekend or two, I'm not sure how many tools you have, and I would either engrave or use metal stencils to mark all of your tools the same. 
The material that you need to mark will probably determine what method you need to use to mark it. I probably wouldn't spend times on things like individual sockets or other small items, but Jack mentioned buying a different brand of those small tools so they are more or less unique just to you, like only Bob uses those types of widgets. I would also take photos of everything you own. I'll also print a copy and throw tape and tape it inside your toolbox for any kind of quick reference, mostly for others to see because you know your tools. Now, the important part of what you engrave or stencil in your tools on any property important to you, such as even your tool chest. If you have the room, always mark your state uh, of driver's license and its number. It would look like this if you were from Texas. TX1234. Okay, five six seven eight. Did you think I was gonna say one two three four dot com? TX one two three four five six seven eight. So TX and then your 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 car you know your car license plate number. The reason you use this is for several reasons. Number one, each item will then have a unique and identifying number, which be, which can be entered as a stolen item in every any state entry system. It doesn't matter if it was stolen in Maine; it shows up in a pawn shop in Hawaii. It will come back as stolen in whatever report where it got entered. And there is no expiration on until it is recovered. This, too, the really handy thing about this is if an officer comes across your items in their line of work, and regardless of if your, one of your items was entered, stolen or not, but you have previously reported a theft or burglary, they can likely either track that or report you, uh, you to yourself down and ask you directly about the item if it was stolen. I can't tell you how many burglaries, thefts, and sometimes lost items have been reunited with their owners because of this. Three, your state driver's license only returns to you. Um, that is how officers are able to reunite so much stolen property and discover thefts and burglaries uh, after the fact when they find marked or inscribed items for rightful owners. Sometimes the items found by law enforcement were never reported stolen or missing because the owner hadn't realized they were missing. But having your state and driver's license gives them something, someone to contact and ask about what they came across. I've personally seen this happen many times and can attest to it working very effectively. Good luck securing your goodies, Justin. Okay, so I didn't understand that exactly then. He's saying to use your driver's license, your DL number. Okay, so my one concern about that is, is that not a critical piece of information that maybe shouldn't be publicly shared? Maybe it's not as big a deal. I don't know, but I mean, isn't that kind of like putting your, I mean, if you put your SSN on there, they'd be able to find it. I, I guess you don't really use a DL for identity theft, but do you? So Justin, dude, I know you listen all the time. I'd love some follow-up comments on this because I'm digging what you're laying down. I really am. And I wouldn't worry about my license plate, my LP. Because, you know, if you want that, you can just, there it is. I'd be like, yeah, I can't believe you put your vehicle on a video and it didn't block out your license plate. Well, like 50 million people see it every year, so I'm not real worried about it. But I've always considered my DL number kind of up, maybe not as critical as like an SSN, but I've always considered a pretty important thing to keep secure. But I get what you're saying. Like, so I'm a cop, I find this guy. He's got a bunch of shit in his car. He's got all kinds of tools back there, and it just doesn't, doesn't seem right about it. And I'm like, where'd you get this? Uh, a friend gave it to me. What's his name? Um, I don't remember. Because that's the kind of shit cops get when they ask questions like that. Uh, okay, yeah, sure. Um, let me see this here. Uh, there's a wrench. Look at that. Ooh, what's this number? Uh, I just put that there because uh, that's a number I have at work. Kind of looks like a driver's license number, buddy. Doesn't match yours. Doesn't even match your state. 
hold on a second. Runs that number and finds out, hey, this belongs to Jack the Jerk Spearco. Calls up Jack the Jerk Spearco. Hey, uh, I found a whole bunch of uh, tools uh, and they're in this guy's car, and some of them have your driver's license number on them. Are those tools missing? Uh, why, yes, I reported them stolen last month. Boom. I, okay. Totally makes sense. Just should you have your DL number that public? I would love to hear some follow-up on that, why it is or isn't safe to do. Justin or anybody else, help me out with that one. Uh, here we go. Andrew from Michigan says, What would you recommend for low-maintenance ground cover for a suburban home in southeast Michigan? I'm in the process of purchasing my first home. The seller is replacing sewer connections, so the front yard will be tore up when I take possession. I'd like to take this opportunity to plant ground cover other than grass. I'm looking for something that will be easier to maintain than a traditional lawn and not be offensive to the delicate sensibilities of neighbors. Thanks for all the great information you provide, Andrew. Andrew, I, I would tell anybody when it comes to a lawn, uh, pasture lawn otherwise, um, ground cover, grass is a great plant. I just don't believe in monocultures even in a lawn. So I would look for, you know, whatever the best perennial grasses in your climate are. And since I don't live there, I don't really know what they are. And what I, my, my number one thing that I would pair grass with, and this was every golf course in America, you know, did this except for the greens, right? Uh, all the rough was this until about 1920, white clover, white clover grass mixture. Um, it was the go-to for what you're asking, for Americans up until about the 1920s when we became obsessed with grass. And there's some industry stuff there that I'll just ignore for now. But I don't know when clover became a leaf, that was the, a weed. That was when America had officially already lost its mind when it comes to the lawn. Clover is just such a great plant. And if you mix it with grass, you're going to end up eventually with a clover-dominated lawn. This is the beauty of clover. First of all, it looks great. Now, When you don't cut it for a while, it gets a little lumpy in texture. It, you know, grass tends to all grow at the same speed. So even if you've let it grow a little taller than you're supposed to, it kind of all looks uniform. It has to really grow a lot before it starts getting lumpy. And we've got to where we want everything even. So it does do that, but it doesn't grow anywhere near as tall as grass, especially Dutch white, New Zealand white. Those are the ones I would look to. And a mixture would be great. So You know, it doesn't grow as tall. And then when you're mowing, I recommend that whatever the highest setting you can put your mower on, put it there. If you have a little lawn tractor or something, you know, you lift that uh, that cutter, that, that blades up as high as you can. I, I would go as far with some push mowers, though. You know, a lot of times you can actually put bigger wheels on a push mower, and it's a cheap upgrade. And by putting a larger wheel, you actually raise the mower deck even more. And, and don't cut low. And I think you'll find that you won't have to mow that anywhere near as much as a typical grass lawn. Another thing that's going to do is it's going to bring in tr just ass loads of pollinators. It really will, because that is going to bring in just a butt ton of pollinators. The other thing you can do is if you have a low-growing group of, of wildflowers that do well in your community, this is a, this is a good hack for everybody, by the way. Um, I, again, I don't know your climate. But, for instance, here in Texas, uh, two that really stand out that people like are Indian paintbrush and blue bonnets. So if you have a place where people kind of go, eh, that lawn's getting a bit, a bit tall there, ain't it, Andrew? Maybe you should get out there and mow your lawn, that type of thing. 
I find that when you have a low-growing wildflower in, especially in the spring, that's usually when wildflowers do the best, um, they kind of, oh, well, he's got blue bonnets. Um, I, I get, well, he shouldn't really cut his lawn until they fall off. And because what people do here that have blue bonnets in their lawn, their pasture, whatever, when, the, when those flowers come up, they're an annual. They produce seed and they drop seed. So you just don't mow until the flowers go away. So it just gives you this little window. He's got Indian paintbrush there, and he's got blue bonnets, so pretty. And you got the, the flower coming on the clover. and So now it looks more meadow-like, and people just relax. So that'd be another thing that I would look at. I, and I don't know what fits that in Michigan. I don't know your climate. Uh, the next thing is the plant that I believe that should be on every property is plantain. And you will have a hard time finding um, broadleaf plantain seed in like by the pound. But the good news is I guarantee you where you live, there is broadleaf plantain. And all you need to do is go out late spring when all the seed heads are on it and just go harvest a bunch of it and toss it around your yard. And where you live, you'll probably end up with it even if you don't do that. So I would get plantain into that mix as well. And look for anything else that makes a useful plant that can grow in a lawn. Wild, I love wild garlic. The flowers are beautiful. They're, the flowers, I don't really even pull wild garlic out of the ground. When all those little flowers come up, those are so amazing in a salad. They just give this garlic bite. Uh, and if you wait long enough, they'll actually form like little garlic kernels. That's like a seed up on top of there. And you can eat those as well, as well as leave some behind so they come back next year. Uh, so that'd be another thing that I'd look at getting in there. But I would just do the core is a good perennial grass combined with a mix of Dutch and New Zealand white clovers. And I think you'll be very happy with that. Uh, that's that's what I would do if it was me. I wish I could grow clover better than I do here, and I wish I could grow plantain better than I do here, because that's what I would be doing. Uh, next up, we've got a question from Jake. Jake says, what's the best way to grow from seed to sell to others when you're a novice? He says, so I decided to start some plants indoors using the Kingbow LED lights you recommended. I bought four of them, and the wife started harassing me for spending money. So I decided to leverage a one-time side hustle. I'm posted to next door with something like, who wants plants for their garden? I'm growing starters and have plenty of extras. I set a price of a dollar a plant. Now I have tons of people wanting to put in orders, probably around 75 plants at this point. I also heard you say you wouldn't start with small cell seed starter kits. Well, too late. I already ordered four 55-cell starter kits with covers and built-in watering trays. Photo in the link below. I'm going to be able to grow these large enough that I can sell them for a dollar, and the customer. Uh, am I going to be able to grow these large enough that I can sell them for a dollar, and the customer have a decent outcome? I plan to start these plants to be ready around our estimated last frost date of April 20. Uh, I really don't want to transplant any of them. Would the growth from seed to transplant cause uh, cause them to be too small based on estimated timeline? Uh, what else do you suggest that I have? And still have a doable outcome. Best practices growing seeds with Kingbow, uh, how to harden off. Also, a thought occurred can I use a small oscillating fan to help the plants get stronger, or will this cause too much evaporation? It depends. Um, if I heat the room to a higher than normal temperature, space here, say around 80 degrees, use a humidifier, would I be able to start seeds later and accelerate growth with shorter growing times to market date? Uh, the answer to that is I don't know. I guess the good thing is the 55-cell starter tray that you're using is a lot less cramped than when a lot of people are going like uh, 78 or 144. That's when it really gets problems. Just, uh, getting the plants big enough to sell for a dollar, what is that? 
You didn't say. What's your target? Six-inch high plant? What are, what are plants selling for around you? I mean, you're in Tennessee. Tomatoes take off pretty damn beautifully in Tennessee. So most people in Tennessee probably could grow tomatoes from seed in the ground. They won't get as many as fast, but it would work. So they don't have to be huge plants. To me, what I like to see when I buy a tomato plant is a good, thick stalk. I would rather buy a tomato plant that's six inches tall, it's a nice, stocky, mean-looking honey badger plant, than I would like to buy a, a tomato plant that's ten inches tall and really leggy. The only advantage to that plant is I can bury it till it's only four inches out of the ground. I'm going to have a huge kick-started root system because tomatoes will root off of their stem. But So that's that's the target there. I mean, you just have to think, like, If that tray, and you sent me a picture where they, of course, had nice little plants in it, that's about the size plant you're going to be able to produce in a tray like that. So is that a big enough plant in your picture, Jake, for you to sell for a dollar? I think it is. Um, you know, usually when you buy a six-pack like that, you're looking at spending about six bucks. If you had six of those, so a dollar a piece, it's probably right. You're not any lower than the people around you. Um, you have the trays, so I guess you might as well use them. Again, I would have suggested growing in four-inch pots um, or friggin' solo cups before doing this because they're going to be a little bit crowded. So you have to kind of think about it. As far as the fan, it is going to cause evaporation. And I wouldn't, look, your job, if you're going to provide plants to people, is give them a plant. It's their job to harden them off. You know, the nurseries and stuff don't harden plants off for you. I wouldn't take on that responsibility. You can strengthen them a bit with that. It does work to a degree, but if it would be me, it'd be something like, you know, maybe an hour a day, and I'd have that hour be right, right after, right before I water again, because uh, you're probably in a situation this size, not going to be setting up automated watering. Um, be careful with the watering trays. Watch what's going on. Really watch your soil for getting too wet and getting mold or fungus on it. Um, I love the concept of watering from the bottom, but it's really easy to get plants too wet. If you're going back a day later and there's still water in that tray, you're probably too wet. Um, as far as going warmer, will they, will they grow faster? Yes. Plants grow faster, especially plants like tomatoes and peppers, Grow faster in warmer temperatures. Um, you're probably more economical looking at a heating mat of some sort um, or possibly creating some sort of low-tech grow tent uh, than to try to heat the entire room because what is the goal? The goal is to make a dollar a plant. Well, if we spend you know, 80 extra dollars in heat energy to grow 80 plants, We lost all of our money on the heat, so you have to watch that. As I've said, I have never found anything that works better than sunlight in a heated greenhouse. I mean, that is, if you want to make money, that is the way that we do it. And that way we only have to heat at night, and we only have to heat warm enough to keep the plants from dying. It's actually, it's good for plants to be really warm during the day and cool off at night. Really warm during the day and cool off at night. That's a, that's a natural cycle. That tells the plant, spring is coming, spring is coming, you know? It, and, and, you know, it progressively gets warmer. Well, you can do that with thermostats, or you can let nature do it. Nature knows how to do it. You can extend your lighting a little longer each day, 
And that's actually a really great thing to do, but if it's out in a greenhouse, nature does it for you. So here's what I mean by that. So you can look at your light cycle and say, well, I'm going to go 18-hour light cycle. That plant doesn't understand 18-hour light life cycle. It doesn't grow during an especially as a seedling. It doesn't grow during an 18-hour light cycle. But whatever your light cycle is, and I don't even know what it is right now, but let's say your light cycle in Tennessee right now is you're getting nine and a half hours of light. You know, then start your seedlings at ten and a half hours with your artificial lights. It doesn't matter until they come up. Once they start to grow and they get their first true leaves, you know, go to 11 hours for a couple weeks. Go to 12 hours for a couple weeks. And that lengthening of the photo period is signaling to the plant, spring is here, summer's coming, grow! And you get better growth rates that way. So that's one way you can do that too. But I think this is cool. Yeah, I wouldn't have bought those traits. But you know what? Good for you, Jake. You did something. You did something. Take a shot at it. Don't take anybody's money until you're ready to give them the plants. And if it doesn't work out for you this year, retool and figure it out for next year. Tell them, look, I didn't, I'm not happy with the quality of plants. And this is what I would do. If you're really not quality, happy with the quality you end up with, at least enough of them, if that does happen to you, I would contact all these people and say, look, um, I gave us a shot this year. And I'm going to do some things next year to make it better. I'm really not happy with the quality of these plants at a dollar a plant, but I'll give them to you for 50 cents a plant. Because what that's going to do is next year they're going to buy your freaking plants. And if next year you, because you're going to do a better job, no, even if you do, if you're happy, even if you make your dollar this year, right, you're going to do a better job next year because you're going to have a year under your belt. You're going to have a better system going. You're going to figure some things out. You're going to figure out what works for you that Jack didn't even come up with. And if you either deliver quality at a dollar this year or you deliver okay and you took less and you were honest about it and said, hey, and if you don't want them, you don't have to buy them. You can go down to Home Depot or whatever and buy them there for three bucks a plant. Then you are probably going to do really well. You're going to build a loyal local customer base. And it's very possible that with some tooling and some adjustments and some fine-tuning, that every year you could put 500 bucks in your pocket. That's 500 bucks you didn't have. That's 500 bucks to invest in your life. At this scale, that's probably about your limit, your top end. But does it need to be any more than that? You can make $500 worth of plants with about the same amount of effort as you can make 200 You really can. It takes more infrastructure, but it's not a lot more work. You start making thousands of plants, it's a lot more work. Now you need a nursery front and all that stuff, and it just ain't worth it. But you can probably sell 500 plants to, you know, 50 people, 10 apiece. That's all you need, $500 in your pocket. And you know what kind of money that is? That's fence post money. You guys know what fence post money is, right? That's our saying here in Texas, between you, me, and the fence post. I had a big, giant vulture that they put on the back of that bill they tell you is an eagle. He don't need to know about it if you get my drift there. All right, next up, Nick asked me, how important is a website versus Facebook? We have a rabbit breeding and showing page on Facebook. Uh, while we do get some traffic from Facebook, I have a domain at HostGator. I'm struggling with setting it up. I'm to the point where I'm ready to pay someone, maybe like Nicole, put it together for me. Do I need a website when I don't have an online store yet? I plan on keeping my domain for the day we need it, but do I need to worry about it right now? More details. We grossed 5000 in sales last year, but right now it's an expensive hobby. Our budget is 4800 a year. 
not including web hosting at 150 a year, eventually will be selling pastured poultry, pork, and beef. If anyone wants to see my feeble attempt at a website, the website is d4farms.com. That's D, the number four, farms.com. Facebook page is at Dupree Family Farms. Thanks, Nick in Nebraska. Well, the answer to you, do you need a website right now since you don't sell anything, is well, not really. Um, the answer, do you need a, a website uh, or can you get by with a Facebook page and business is, no, you need a website. Uh, I'm going to say this about your website. He says a feeble attempt. It's an installed WordPress site. It could be dressed up a little bit. But for the level you're at now, I don't know that you need even anybody to do any design work or set it up for you. I think you just need a, a, a class on how to use WordPress. I mean, I, 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 the theme is one of those themes that's like designed to be a really good-looking website, but it ain't been made to look that way yet. And that means it's got a lot of features that you probably don't know how to use. And you either need somebody to help you figure out which ones to disable uh, or how to use them. And then you can you, – that side will work. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not a great site, but for the level you're at now, you need it. You, you, it's what you. It's enough. It'll work. Um, the core question here, though, no, you cannot rely on a Facebook page group slash etc. You can't because you don't know what the hell's going to happen over there, and you will never have full access to all your people on a Facebook page. And I think you have. A, I didn't look it up, but it sounds like it is a page, not a, not a group. But that's even worse. How much worse is it? Well, I will put out a post on the Survival Podcast Facebook page where I have like 110, 115,000 people that like the page. Guess how many people will see it? 2,000? 3,000? Now, Facebook will always offer to allow me to advertise it for money to my people that I brought to Facebook. But they won't make sure that all my people that said they want to see it see it. You know, they'll make sure that the, the next uh, great satire article from Babylon B that their 75th cousin shared, they see, but they will not see my post. Groups are where it's at on Facebook for now. They are much better. They're highly interactive. They run themselves. And when I put up a post in the group, I can tell by the response that so many more people see it. Uh, my personal page... You just buy regular like everybody else has. I get more interaction there than I get on my professional page. I have like, I don't know, 2,500 friends or something like that that Zuckerberg says are my friends. Uh, but uh, I get way more interaction. People see what I post in, in that relationship. So I don't think that a Facebook page is even worth using as a true marketing tool anymore. I, I just think that it has become a scam by Facebook to sell you access to your own people. So if you're going to use Facebook, I'd, I'd, I'd transfer over to a group. You can make the group basically the same name as the page, and you can link the group to the page, and I recommend you do that. But then put your effort, if you're going to put any effort into growing things on Facebook, into the group. Post to both of them, but push people from the page to the group, I'm telling you. And the reason I can say that you should do that is I'm, I've done it myself. When the group started out producing the page, And that time, the page had maybe 90,000 members, and the group had 2,000 members. I was done promoting the page, if that makes sense. Um, the big thing here, though, is access to your people. And you say you don't have a web store. You don't sell online yet. But what you should be doing is building a database. 
Now, you're still a bit early for even that yet. It sounds like you're basically selling expensive rabbits to yuppies locally, and you're making your hobby just barely pay for itself. So when you're saying we're eventually going to do pasture poultry and all this stuff, you're probably going to build that locally too, mostly. So you got to decide when it's the time to pull the trigger and get this website built correctly, but it needs to be designed to not only sell your value proposition, to get people to get in touch with you, but to collect information and collect email into an email list because that will become your number one marketing tool. Um, I would also say that your business is custom designed, like just perfect match for other social media platforms like Pinterest and Instagram. And I would really work on building those presences as well. And I know it's another thing to do, but it's free and it's easy and it doesn't hurt nothing. And, and I feel like I really missed the boat with Instagram. I didn't get it. I didn't work on my presence on Instagram for 10 years. It's probable that right now, had I worked Instagram as a thing for the entire time that I worked Facebook as a thing, that I'd have easily 100,000 followers on Instagram. And guess what? When I put something out, like 50,000 of them would see it. That's a hell of a lot more bang for the buck than Facebook is. So I would not ignore those others. But so... For you right now, I don't know that you really need to worry about this, okay? Long term, if you want to build a business and, and the web is going to be a platform and you rely on, which means trust, social media giants to maintain your customer base for you, you're asking. You're asking to get screwed. That's what we could, And go back and listen to last week where I talked about Patreon. And everything I said applies to this, and that's as far as we'll go on this today. But I'm sure Nicole could help you out if you get in touch with her. Um, there's other people in this audience that can do that as well. Uh, that at your level where you're at now, honestly, might be more suited for it because Nicole's, you know, kind of a little bit high end, not super high end, but a little bit high end. And that's, you know, if you have an ongoing business and you're selling stuff now, you know, you, you need that level because you can get an ROI. If you're not taking any revenue off the site yet, then you need to maybe, you know, a few hundred bucks at the most to just, and I said, like I said, I think what you need more than design work and development work is you need teaching. So you can either do that on YouTube and learn how to do this stuff or get somebody that knows WordPress to sit with you for a couple hours and explain here's how all this stuff works. Um, next up, Tom sent me this email and it says, I find this hysterical on so many levels. Basically, Alexandria Oxio-Cortez is claiming victory for her part in getting Amazon deal killed. Well, I don't think it really changes a single thing in the godforsaken city. I don't think going it's going to play well for them. Tom in New York. Um, and this is on the Political Insider. And it's an article about um, Ocasio-Cortez celebrates Amazon's stunning cancellation of planned New York City headquarters. This is... Uh, you, know, you can you can read the article if you want to. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But, I mean, if you've been on social media much, you've probably seen plenty of it. But here's the, the gist of it, in case you haven't. Uh, our, our latest lame-brain congresswoman, Ocasio-Cortez, who has a degree in economics, by the way, uh, held a press conference and celebrated a victory uh, that her and her ilk had so basically twerked off Amazon that Amazon feared that New York City wasn't going to keep the deal that it made and said, screw this, we're not coming to New York City. We don't need this crap uh, for our, our basically our, our, our second headquarters. There was tons of cities that, that fell over themselves to try to get us to come there, 
we'll just not do this right now, and when we need to, we'll just go somewhere else. So she took a victory lap. Now, this is 25,000 jobs in her district that she just shit-canned, and she thinks this is a good idea. But we're not going to play kick Ocasio-Cortez in the head today. It is easy to beat up on stupid people, and eventually it gets boring. You know, eventually you're basically being a bully with another bully. She's a government bully, but they all are. But, but just before we, we move on from let's kick Ocasio a little bit, this is a woman with an economics degree. Okay, when I say the colleges are now a scam industry, the fact that this bimbo has a degree in economics with fairly good grace from my understanding is proof that I am not wrong. You have to be a complete idiot to think it's a good thing that you cost your district, not just your city, her specific district. Her job is to do good for her district and the people that live there. She costs them a, a, a new employer with 25,000 jobs because Amazon was going to get billions in tax breaks. But what I'm actually calling this segment is the truth about corporations that don't pay tax and why they shouldn't. Okay. I'm going to start you out here at the kindergarten level, folks, because I know some of you are twerked off right now. All right. Is tax theft? Do you believe that tax is theft? Yes or no? And some of you are like, no, we need taxes. we got to have my roads and my schools. Okay, I can't help you at the kindergarten level. We'll get, we'll get to your level in a minute then. All right. If you think tax is theft and you say, well, because I pay my taxes, they should pay theirs, what you're saying is, since they're stealing money from me, it's only right that other people get money stolen from them, and you're not happy when somebody avoids having money stolen from them. You're selfish. Sorry, you are. And this goes back to what I've been teaching about taxes since day one. Only 10%, and it's actually less if you actually count pages, but it's just easy to understand this way. About 10% of our United States income tax code is how in the hell you pay your taxes. It's the stuff you have to do. And then 90% of it is how to get out of it. It's how to get out of it. Because the lobbyists write the laws, and codes are laws, and Congress passes those laws because lobbyists say they want this, and they all work for rich people who like it that way. You can bitch, you can cry, you can moan, you can think that Bernie Sanders or Ocasio-Cortez or Trump is going to fix it, and none of them are going to fix it because the system is the system. You're asking the, the, the next row of teeth in the mouth of a shark to change the nature of the shark. The politicians are just the teeth, and when one falls out, another one just pops in there, and the shark is still the shark. The system is the shark. You ain't going to change it. You are not going to change it. You are not going to change it. And if you think you are, you live in effing law, law, land. Okay? It's not going to change. They'll change the marketing. They'll change the marginal tax rates. They'll tax you higher and tell you they're getting the corporate. And they're never going to really change the system because the system's not designed to change. That's what makes it a system. So you learn to work the system instead of being envious of your neighbor. Do not covet thy corporation's ability to pay little to no taxes. No, that is wrong. Covetousness is wrong. That's when you want what others have at their expense. That's a sin. Okay? 
That's covetousness. There's nothing wrong with saying, gee, my neighbor has a really great house. I'd like my house to be as nice as my neighbor's. What do I need to do to make my house that nice? That's not covetousness. When thou shalt look upon thy corporation paying little taxes, say to thyself, self, how by with did these corporations pay such little taxes? And yourself will answer you, there are some ways which we cannot do what they have done, because they have written loopholes into the law for themselves. However, many of those loopholes do or can apply to us. We shall use them and endeavor to reduce our taxes as well. Because this is about being happy instead of being right in, happy in action indeed rather than right in opinion. Because you're focused on justice and you're not getting it. So don't even worry. Now, specific to something like this with Amazon, okay, these aren't federal income taxes. I get that. These were taxes they were going to pay the city of New York. The gangster changes, it's still theft. And then this is what. People like Ocasio-Cortez's teeny tiny brain cannot comprehend. Well, they were going to get $3 billion dollars or whatever it is. No, they weren't. There is no money. You're not giving the money. You don't have this money with what you speak of. This is simply an absence of theft for a time under specific conditions. That's all that it is. And then they come there and all these people work there and they make a whole bunch of money and they spend it and they pay taxes. So you haven't saved your district a penny. You've cost them far more than you think you've saved them. Which leads me to why we should not care if corporations pay taxes at all. I would be fine if they passed a law and said that corporations, at least ones that have employees, pay zero income tax. Zero. Now, I'd be happy if we passed it to everybody. But I would, eat, I would, I would start there. Well, Why? This is so hard for some people to get their heads around. First of all, it doesn't matter how much money you actually collect in taxes from corporations. Corporations of the kind we're talking about, we're not talking about Joe Blow's construction with three people working for him. Corporations like Amazon, like Nike, like Apple, do not pay taxes. They don't pay taxes. The customer pays the tax. It's the customer's money. And they, when you make everything equal for everybody, then they all are playing the same game as they compete with each other, and they will push the market up to cover the differential, and they net will pay no real taxes. You pay the corporate income tax. My God, I know this is hard to understand because you are so wired for class warfare from the bullshit of our supposed education system You, if you are an Apple customer and Apple pays more taxes, you paid the tax. It's your money. Next, what do corporations do with money? Do they put it in a room and then the board of directors once a day all get naked and roll around in it together and, and wash their privates with it? Well, since only 3% of money is even cash anyway, no, we know they don't do that, okay? So what do they do with money? Do they sit around and look at it? No. What do they do with it? They grow. They grow their companies. They make new products. They hire people. Okay, but this guy's the richest man in the world, and he's not paying taxes. Bullshit! 
Jeff Bezos is paying more taxes in a day than most of you people will pay in your life. If we're talking about personal income tax, the minute the money moves from the corporation to the person so that they can actually do something with it on a personal level, it becomes subject to the same personal freaking income taxes you pay. But let me go back to this. If taxes theft, you should be happy for anybody to avoid the theft. They're not evil because they're a company. Now, some companies are evil because of what they do. Different subject. How do you deal with a company that's evil because of what it does? You don't do business with them, and you move on about your effing life. And when you get an opportunity to tell somebody why you don't do business with them, you tell them. And they either agree with you, or they say, screw it, I don't care. But I don't think that's right. What you think is right doesn't matter. Life is life. Que sera, sera, c'est la vie. Okay? This is the real world, not some phony, baloney, bullshit world you saw in some high-tech bullshit documentary on YouTube where everybody's going to run around with their thumb up everybody else's ass, whistle, and magic unicorns are to come down from outer space and grant you freaking wishes. This is the real world. Don't care if XYZ Company didn't pay a dime of tax. I don't care. And they're never going to pay it. And I've told you they're not going to pay it for I don't know how long. But under Barack Obama, they didn't pay then either. Well, it's Trump's loopholes. No, no. GE didn't pay jack diddly screw all nada under Barack Obama. Didn't pay under Bush. Not Trump's loopholes. Now, lowering corporate taxes, because not all these corporations are giant megacorps, does attract more money to the United States. This is why I'd be fine with a 0% corporate income tax rate. If Whatever country had the balls to say, as long as the company keeps the money in said company, no corporate taxes within 10 years would have the largest economy anybody ever conceived of. Ever conceived of. Prosperity beyond your wildest dreams. And would easily be able to transition to a system where the things that some people can't figure out how we would do without government, you could have something like a national sales tax of 10%. That's it. Same for everybody. On money spent. And zero taxes for anybody. You could run a country, you'd have no problems if you stuck to things that government actually can do okay. My, may, I prefer that we would have a private system, but, you know, building roads... Not the most evil thing anybody's ever done. So the stuff like, my roads, okay, fine. It, here's my thing with status, right? So you tell a status you're an anarchist, a voluntarist, whatever. What do you hear? Oh, we, we ought to have some social programs. I mean, how would we get roads without this? How would we defend our borders from enemies? China would come in and take everything over. Yeah, okay. Okay, so if we had a government and all they did was see the infrastructure and protecting our borders, would that be okay with you? Well, you know, um, how are we going to have, like, you know, cell phone towers and stuff? Because, uh, yeah, they can build them and all, but we have, we have this radio frequency and TV channels and all, and we have to have some way of controlling who can use what. And, and so, so, okay, so, all right, all right, statist, if I agree that we need a government to provide for the common defense, provide infrastructure, and also manage the infrastructure of telecommunications and other airwaves and things like that, is that enough for you? Well, you know, uh, them old people in Social Security and... 
Okay, I think Social Security is a Ponzi scheme. But if I met you there and said we can have a government pension program that's self-funding, and that's all the government does, would that be okay? Oh, you know, my schools, uh, you know, it, it, it just like no matter what somebody says, there's nothing they actually are okay with being taken away from the government. That's why we live in a world we do, which is why it's not going to change. Which is why you should be happy when anybody, whether it's your next door neighbor or a giant mega corporation, doesn't get money stolen from them. Lastly, when it comes to these deals like this, the corporations make to build a building and a facility, etc. There, they always pay back more to that area than it costs in revenue because the cost in revenue is zero. It's zero. It doesn't cost you anything to give a tax break to someone that's not currently subject to your taxation to get them to come be subject to your taxation. That's why companies do it. It's corporate welfare. Of course it is. It also works. You want to talk about getting rid of welfare? I'm for getting rid of all of it. But you want my roads and my schools and my Social Security and my blah, 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 blah. So if you want that shit, then you're going to have taxes. And one of the ways you increase tax revenue is to offer incentives for large corporations to come do business in your area because it increases the tax base that you currently do not have. I know some of you are pissed. I'm sorry for telling you the truth. I'm sorry for being a jerk, which means just encouraging real knowledge. Now, Tom sent me another email that goes with this so perfectly. New York Post has an article out. says that uh, Como has a two- Point three. This is the governor of New York. Billion dollar revenue shortfall to deal with, and it's only getting worse as high earners and wealthy leave the state. Okay, now they don't want to look at it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to touch it. They want to pretend it's not there, and they want to keep spending more money while they chase away one of the biggest employers in the world in Amazon at the same heartbeat. I will put a link. To the article as always so that you can read it if that is what you would like to do but there's something more important than the article itself on this page at the New York Post and that is a picture Governor Andrew Como and his budget director Robert Majoika update the news media on state revenues and SALT state and local taxes deduction rollback and This is a brand new article, February 4th, so it's like a year, uh, I'm sorry, like a, a couple weeks old at the most. Ten days, roughly. Um, well, what, it's two weeks, straight up two weeks. But behind them is a picture. And the picture says, states with the largest revenue declines. I found this very interesting. I found this very interesting. Let me read these states to you and tell me if you are... Even a tiny rat's ass bit surprised. New York. New Jersey. Connecticut. California. Massachusetts. And they all say the same thing. It's Trump's fault. It's Trump's fault. Trump took away deductions for our taxes. Trump took away det <laughs> Trump stopped letting your victims claim your theft as a reduction in the theft that they would experience in the federal government. That's what you're saying there. But what I find even more interesting, I started a forum a while ago, and it's still there. It doesn't get used very much. I think actually some folks have created a Facebook group for this now 
because people seem to like Facebook better than old school forums at this point, called Walking to Freedom. And when we did Walking to Freedom, we made a list of the 10 worst states. See, this was kind of like a bigger version in a different way of the Free State Project and let's move people to New Hampshire. It was, let's simply move people away from the worst states. Let's use federalism. Let's use federalism. Let me tell you that every one of those five states made what we called the naughty list. The states that were most abusive to the rights and the, and, and the property of their citizens. Every one of those states made that list. We were gonna, if it, if it would have grown bigger than it did, we were gonna run a, like a new election every year. I guarantee you not a single one of those states would have come off that list. Not a single one of those states would have come off of that list. And what I said was that these states were gonna be depopulated. The people would only take this shit so much. And the final check on the system in a republic is freedom of movement. Freedom of movement is the final check. These five states, and I bet you if we made a list of the ones with the biggest shortfalls and the biggest exoduses, our list of ten, I bet you eight out of ten would be there. I, I, I don't know about Hawaii, because I know Hawaii ended up on there because of their stance on, the, on guns. Um, but, you know, Hawaii's got kind of a different scenario going on there. Delaware, I guarantee you Delaware would be on there. I know that was on our list. Colorado, I'm not sure. Colorado's a mixed bag. It's not quite all the way to this kind of stupidity yet. So, And it's had a big influx due to cannabis. So I don't know if Colorado would be on the list of the largest revenue declines. But this doesn't look good for these states. You know how I feel? Good. Good. Because this is going to show America the problem with trusting the state and letting states grow and get bigger and more powerful. You can't undo it. You can't undo it. New York right now can't say, oh, shit, man, we did all this stuff so wrong. They've given out so many benefits and, and, and created so many entitlements. I should call false entitlements. Because I don't, I, I don't like the fact that people get upset when you call Social Security an entitlement. Like, it's a, not an entitlement, you earned it. Well, see, this is new speak. We've changed the definition of words. An entitlement is something you are entitled to. And I do believe that people that have been screwed by the system are entitled to get their Social Security benefits. They paid in, they should get it out. That's, that's, that's an actual entitlement. A lot of this shit in New York are false entitlements. You know, everybody can go to school for free or whatever, college for free or shit they're trying to do now. You're not entitled to that. It's a fake entitlement. But see, once people believe it's entitlement, they don't want to let go of it. So how do you fix this now? They can't cut taxes. Well, they can. But can they survive long enough for it to work? And does anybody trust that they're going to stay low? See, here's my problem with Amazon in all this, with going to New York. Why? Well, the talent pool, bullshit. Talent goes where money is. Talent goes where money is, and there are there's plenty of tech talent all over the country. They could have come here. To, DFW kind of joined up and said, pick any place. Plano, Richardson, we don't care. Fort Worth, whatever. We're all in this together. All the cities of the Metroplex got together and made a joint presentation. Here's what we have to offer. We got Love Field. We got DFW. You know, we got, you don't have to, we're not, what kind of deal are you going to give us on corporate taxes? We, we, we don't charge corporate taxes. Well, what about personal income tax? We don't have personal income tax. 
So you're not going to get the screw job when it runs out. Whatever the See, all these deals always run out eventually, and then they end up paying. That's the other reason that these municipalities don't lose by doing this. It's not like when they build a football stadium and they're going to spend $600 million dollars And the city gives the entity $300 million of the $600 million to build the stadium with knowing the revenue will come back eventually. Mathematically, I don't like it, but that works. It worked for the Cowboys Stadium. There's no doubt Arlington has profited far more than Arlington gave by having the stadium there. First time they got a Super Bowl, it was over. It was done. Paid for. Again, don't like it, but the numbers work. But see, in that instance... The, 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 the town, the city, the state is actually giving the entity money. In these types of situations, they're just not taking their money. It's totally different mathematically the way that it works out. But why go to a state where you have to work a deal like that? Why don't you just go somewhere that's already good? And if you can get some kind of property tax deal or something like that, fine. And again, this is a situation where, okay, so they're going to move in. They're going to build this huge facility. And then you're not, you're not going to charge them property tax on this multi-billion dollar facility they built. So we're losing billions in revenue. No, you're not. Because what's there right now? An empty field, an old warehouse? How much is it giving you now? Why would Amazon go to a place like this? I heard one of the talking heads just so full of bullshit today. He's like, there ain't many places where you can go where like 25,000 new jobs wouldn't ruin the local real estate market and overprice it. Bullshit. Bullshit. My God! Did, 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 whoever gets HQ2, it's a win. It's absolutely a win for them. Whoever it ends up being. And Ocasio-Cortez, yeah, you're an idiot. You're a freaking moron. Let's finish with something a little more fun today. Uh, Dennis says, can maple syrup be fermented similar to honey into an alcohol? Uh, Jack, as you might recall from your years in central PA, there's a lot of places that sell maple syrup from shops to roadside stands. Seems to be all over. Many an Amish or Mennonite farm has it for sale at a decent price. Seems to me it's got lots of sugar, so I think adding some yeast would be all that would be needed. Once I've never heard of this, uh, maybe it's not a thing for a reason. So what, what do you say? Can it be turned into an interesting and tasty adult concoction? Thanks for all you do. Denny and PA. Um, Of course you're Denny. You're in PA and your name's Dennis. Of course you would be nicknamed Denny. Every dentist I ever knew was Denny, in PA anyway. And in PA, you say PA instead of Pennsylvania. It's weird. You don't say, hey, I'm Jack from TX, right? But you do say, hey, like one of our callers, I'm Jason from PA. It's a thing. If you live there, you'd understand. Uh, anyway, so the answer is yes. And the answer is also just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. And I always give the example when I say that of you can put your penis in a beehive and then beat on the roof. But it doesn't mean that you should. Okay, This isn't quite that. My personal opinion is from tasting alcoholic beverages made with maple syrup, that if one were to go all in on maple syrup, it would probably be a little over the top on flavor. I think maple is a great flavor to play with, and yes, it will ferment. It will ferment just fine. Um, but remember, whenever we ferment the sugar out of something, we leave nothing but the base flavor without the sugar. So if we ferment orange juice, it, it, it's going to taste like some of the most sour lemon ever. That's why when we do an orange mead, we limit how much orange goes in there. Because if we, if we strip away from orange juice the sugar, we're left with citric acid. Lemons, anyone? Got it? So when life gave you oranges, you turned them into lemons, right? 
so I think with maple syrup, it's not quite that big of a deal. But it's kind of sort of the same thing. If you wanted to try it, 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 effectively it is honey. It's honey or it's malt syrup. So, you know, something like if you wanted to do a mead, but it was really a honey ferment with no honey, I mean a, a, a syrup ferment with no honey in it, uh, you know, the same type of ratio of about three pounds to the gallon would be about where I would start. What I think would be more interesting would be something like two and a half pounds of honey to a half pound of maple syrup. And then maybe you make another batch that's like two pounds of honey to a pound of maple syrup. And that, I think, would be quite good. Another option in the DIY world, where my grandparents lived, we had two great big beautiful sugar maples. We never wanted to go through the hassle of boiling down the sap. We just didn't. But we used to drain a couple buckets of sap, and then we would basically drink maple water which we would take that sap and dilute it about 50% water to 50% sap, and it was this nice, light, little bit of maple, little bit of sweetness. It was really good. It was also good, you take maple water and you add about 10, you know, pure maple water, and you add uh, 10, 15% uh, tonic water, soda water, whatever, you know, sparkling water, enough to make it bubbly. It's really good. I would think one of the things you might try as well, Why not make a mead using maple sap, not maple syrup? Tap a tree, you only need about a gallon of it. And heat it up enough to dissolve and make that try that too. And I would go as high as, you know, if you're going to do a three pound to a gallon type mead, one and a half uh, honey, one and a half maple. And I would, you know, for an experiment, I think it'd be really cool to do a half pound maple and you reduce the honey accordingly. A half pound maple syrup. One pound maple syrup, one and a half pound, and taste them side by side. Same yeast, same technique. So those are different ways. Where I found maple syrup to be really, really, really amazing in the beer brewing world. And adding about uh, about two pounds of maple syrup to any really good stout recipe. You know, anything that's like a Guinness or up, but especially like a, a Russian imperial stout which is basically a barley wine stout. So we're talking about a stout with an alcohol content somewhere between 8 and, and 10%. Ages really, really well. You know, you find a stout like that and you add raspberry, you make a raspberry stout, it is like just, it's like, oh, so good. Well, I, I have done that, and instead of doing raspberries as your adjunct, using maple syrup, up to as much as 3 pounds of maple syrup, Once you do that, you got to pull your malt extract back a little bit, or you're going to be driving your alcohol into like the 12% range. But that is another way I would look at using it. So those are just some of my thoughts. I know we got a lot of mead makers, vendors, brewers, etc. in the audience. Love to hear what you've done with maple syrup in the comments on the blog today. And with that, let's wrap up the show. First up, big announcement for members of the MSB. I've kind of hinted this as might be coming. Uh, I put a post out on the blog today about it. There's a company that I found about a month and a half ago called Fish Newer, like fish manure, fish newer. And what they do is they harvest the manure from a catfish farm. They came up with a really innovative way to do that. And they compost it with oats, oat straw, and they bond it to clay, and it makes an incredible fertilizer. It's already very reasonably priced. And I got all you guys that are MSB members a discount of 10% on all their products. You buy direct from the manufacturer. It's not an Amazon deal or something like that. Uh, but 10% off, and, you know, it's a great deal. It's 10% off a great product. 
I've been playing with it. It's working really good for me. Obviously, I can only do so much this time of year. It's freaking 32 degrees out right now. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, but it's, I have been impressed with, you know, some growing in containers and things like that, uh, with the difference it's made. Here's what's cool about this stuff. It is basically allowing you a lot of the benefits of aquaponics without doing aquaponics. When you look at the NPK in an aquaponics system, and you're growing, you know, deep water raft, whatever, it's really dramatically low. It's not high. And yet these plants grow with such vigor, and you wonder why that is. They don't need as much nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium as you think they do. The reason we go with fairly large amounts in a fertilizer is because they can only get so much of it at one time. When you have bioactive systems and you have lots of micronutrients and you have lots of microorganisms, then plants can get all they want whenever they need it from whatever is available. So it's a, it's a low NPK thing in aquaponics, but it grows really, really fast. You've seen the results that people have. Well, what this fertilizer does is bring that type of biological activity to terrestrial systems, so other words, in the ground growing. So I definitely think this stuff's worth giving a shot. Uh, I've been incredibly impressed with it. I did a write-up on it today, and that's another reason to join the MSB. So if you're not a member yet, you know, consider joining. I'm going out of my way this year, guys, to try to bring not just more stuff to MSB, but different stuff. So I brought you a discount from the Paracord shop not long ago, got you a discount on CBD coffee, and I got that finally worked out today exactly what that discount is. So I'll do the formal announcement on that soon. Uh, and then I just got you this product. These are all different things. So if you've been thinking about becoming a member and you've been on the fence, you know, you just look at what we already have and, and the membership pays for itself. You can learn more by clicking members on the website. The other way you can help support the show is by doing your online shopping through tspaz.com. Today's item of the day, we talked about it a lot on my show with Stephen Harris on Bug Out Trailers last week, so I'll be real short, but it's the Big Buddy Propane Heater. But I wanted to address a couple things. One, if you're not filling your own little Coleman one-pound propane things, you should be. Steve and I talked about a video. It's in the review today as well, a link to that video, where you can use the little adapter and use 20-pound propane tanks to fill the one-pound tanks without putting them in the freezer, without trying to put the tank in the heat and the can in the freezer and doing it. It's stupid. There's a relief valve on there. The guy tells you how to use it to fill the cans perfectly. It works perfectly. I've tried it. It works. Second is... With the Big Buddy heater, they're designed to either use, you can use up to two of the Coleman one-pound cans, or you can use a 20-pound propane tank, like for a grill. I saw a couple people today comment that they read or heard or saw somewhere that you shouldn't do that because the hose messes up the heater. I've had mine for eight years. Because I have the space and the capability, I've always run it on a 20-pound tank. I don't know what the hell people are coming up with, but... It's not a thing as far as I know. I've never had a problem with my heater. Another person said he preferred an all-metal type heater so there's nothing to melt. Uh, if you melt something on a Big Buddy heater, you did something wrong, like got a second one, removed the, the guard from it, and put it up against the, the one you melted. I mean, it can't melt itself. It's not... It's not built that way. <laughs> There's some things plastic does really well. So I think this is a great heater. And, you know, right now my feet are kind of cold, and I think how cold they'd be if the heat went on in my house. And I think they wouldn't be that bad because I'd be running my big buddy heater. Two is one and one is none. And if you rely only on the heat that's in your central system in your home, if that happens to have a problem, you're at, you know, one being none. And you have two choices when it comes to cold weather and outages. You can either be warm or freeze your ass off. And freezing your ass off sucks, so don't do it. 
Get yourself a Big Buddy heater. And as I've always said, I also have a really great kerosene heater. You can find it at T-Spaz as well. Um, kerosene, I think, is your go-to in some states. With availability, etc., it's a little bit more efficient. It costs less money. Uh, kerosene heaters are great, too. So I, I like both models. I just figured it's still cold out. going to be cold for a while. If you're not prepared yet, get prepared. That brings us to our song of the day. Our song of the day um, is by Three Doors Down, but it's not a song that they're really heavily known for. It's called That Smell, uh, which originally was done by Leonard Skinner, which had a lot to do with uh, one of the band members getting in a wreck and driving into a tree and then into a house and smelling like booze and drugs. Uh, also kind of coincided with eventually uh, the death of several of the band members on an airplane and problems that the band had with overuse of drugs and alcohol. I don't think anybody's surprised by that with music, especially from the time frame that Leonard Skinner was blowing things up, um, that drugs and alcohol could be a problem. But I wanted to take a different approach to this song and talk about it. Um, you know, there's some songs that I like covers of them, some I really don't. And there's some people that they're so epic that you just, I don't need a cover of their music. I don't feel that way about this song here. And what I wanted to talk about, just a straight music thing, how... Two different approaches to covers can really work and sometimes not work. So in this case, I think the reason that Three Doors Down did such a good job with this song, they didn't try to make it their own. They didn't really change it. They did it the way that Skinner did it. And it's good. I don't know if it's as good, but it's good. Sounds great. Sounds a lot like Skinner. I mean, really. Um, yeah. And I think some songs like, well, that's how to do that. Then I think of other people that are just epic. Let's say Johnny Cash. And I think, like, you, know, you do a Johnny Cash cover, man. You got some stones. But yet, you know, Walk the Line is one of the most covered songs in, in music history. It's been covered over and over and over and over again. But the cover that I liked was, and I don't know who did it first. There was another band that had already done it. Um, but a guy named Chris Daughtry from American Idol many years ago. They put, yeah, this is one of the things I didn't like about American Idol. They make people do stupid music for them that they would never do. You got a guy that's a blues singer and you want him to do Barry Manilow, that kind of crap. They used to just try to retread, you know, washed up artists and stuff. Well, they had like a Johnny Cash night. And Chris Daughtry, you know, now his band's called Daughtry, is a rock guy and he's pretty good. Guy I made a bunch of money on on the internet back then because it was easy to do stuff like flip traffic around, by the way. That's how I even, that's why I even paid attention. But when they did Johnny Cash Night, and everybody's out there trying to cover the man in black doing twangy country, some people have no business doing twangy country. He did this version of Walk the Line that was kind of dark and sinister-like. Kind of reminds me of the way that Disturbed redid Sound of Silence. Much slower, different tone, a different take. And it was really good. So I think some music can be covered... By doing it true to the way it was originally done, and some by taking it and making it your own. But I think when you take it and make, your, make it your own, you have to make it so divergent and so different that it bears no resemblance to the original so that it stands on its own. Or you got to have the stones to actually step up and do something that's difficult the way it was originally done and do it that way right. I got to say, Three Doors Down pulled it off here. This is a good song. Almost everybody out there, I bet, has heard this song before. 
And uh, if you haven't, you will today. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Tomorrow, but tomorrow